Welcome to All Things Erie from Erie PA. This is Kathy, your host. I, I know I haven't been on here for a while and I want to apologize. Some was due to the stomach flu, which had hit me pretty hard and kept me down for about a week and the coronavirus or COVID-19 that started to spread. And if you're like most people right now, you've been asked to do self-distancing or you're doing a 14-day self-isolation or quarantine. So if you're listening to this for the first time, thank you. You can go back and download other episodes which are available on these platforms, podbean.com, iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, at All Things Erie from Erie PA. That's Erie with three E's. If you have any questions or comments, you can leave those at Facebook and Twitter at, at All Things Erie from Erie PA and Instagram at Kathy B-R-D-L-Y. Now, this week's episode is a mystery, and when I mean a mystery, I mean a mystery that had me completely hooked. I even reached out to Lassise LaSalle, I hope I pronounced her name right, who wrote a blog about this case several years ago. And I had some wonderful conversations through email about our thoughts on this case. I even reached out to Mr. Caban, who you, who you, whom you will hear about, who was the private investigator. Unfortunately, I didn't hear back from him or from the victim's sister. At the end, I will give you my thoughts as to what I think what happened. Again, these are only my thoughts and my opinions. Now, to start in on this case, this mystery started back on June 8, 1989. Now, it this reached part of a conclusion and had been going on for several years. It started in the quiet town of Vancouver, British Columbia, which is a suburb of Richmond. The people of that area were shocked when a body was found lying in the yard of an abandoned house. But it wasn't just because there was a body, but because of who it was. It was a 44-year-old nurse named Cindy James who had been drugged and strangled, and her hands and feet had been tied behind her back. Now, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police believed that her death was either an accident or suicide, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, here's a little bit about Cindy's history first. Her real name was Cynthia Elizabeth Hack James. Now, her nickname was Cindy. Cindy had graduated from nursing school back in 1965, or 1966, excuse me. She later became the administrator for a preschool for children with behavioral and emotional issues. She was married, and her husband, now I want you to keep this in mind, he was 19 years her senior, and they did not have any children of, her, of their own. She did not have children of her own. In July of 1982, they separated. Four months later, Cindy had began receiving mysterious and sometimes threatening phone calls. Now, during a period of seven years, she reported nearly 100 incidents of harassment. Now, this is back in 1980s land when you could do prank phone calls and nobody knew who it was. In today's society, you could you could block calls, but you can still find out what's going going on. This was before caller ID. Now these got worse after she involved the police. And at night she would hear prowlers, her porch light was smashed, and her phone lines were even severed. 
Now, according to a friend of hers named Agnes Woodcock, she said bizarre notes began to appear on Cindy's doorstep. And someone was trying to scare Cindy to death. Cindy became reluctant and frightened to give details. And over time, the police even began to doubt her stories. Now, there's a timeline in here that we're going to that we're going to go over. Now, back in July of 1982, Cindy, who, whose married name was Makepeace, now that she ended her 16 year marriage to Dr. Roy Makepeace. And she began to live on her own for her first time. But she and her ex-husband continued to date. Now, I want you to keep that in mind. Then in October, or on October 12th of 1982, Cindy calls the Vancouver police to report several obscene and threatening phone calls. October 13th, Cindy reports more phone calls and a prowler. Someone had attempted to open the back door of her rented house. October 15th, Cindy reports that a rock had been thrown through her kitchen window. October 19th, Cindy reports that someone had entered her home, slashed her pillow, discovered this only when she turned down her bed sheets. So imagine that somebody had broken into her home, went up into her bedroom, left everything else alone, pulled down her bed covers, slashed her pillow, and remade her bed so that she would only find this when she went to bed. So they knew her routine. Now the responding officer, his name was Pat McBride, suggested that Roy Makepeace could be responsible. Now this is Cindy's ex-husband and supposedly had been dating. And Cindy denied that possibility as Makepeace was the one who had urged her to phone the police about the pillow. Now, this is still October, October 21st. As a personal favor, McBride installs deadbolts on Cindy's doors and he begins to visit her, you know, trying to keep her, keep an eye on her to see what's going on, kind of like the night, you know, knight in shining armor type deal. Now, on October 30th, a note assembled from cut letters is found on Cindy's porch. October 31st, McBride moves in with Cindy, you know, just to protect her, but they're dating. In early November of 82, McBride discovers Makepeace patrolling the alley behind Cindy's house, armed with a handgun and a rifle. To me, that is very suspicious. You know, now Makepeace is now not only the ex-husband, but the ex-boyfriend. The police officer is living in the house. He's also the, the new boyfriend. In December of 1982, McBride moves out at Cindy's request. They continue to date, but he keeps his key. Keep in mind, not only does McBride have a key, but Makepeace has a key. In January of 83, the phone company installs a tap on Cindy's phone. They were able to trace some calls to an outlying Vancouver exchange, but no specific information is is able to be given because the calls were too short. In January of 83, more disturbing pictures arrive in the mail and McBride finds a note from cutout letters on Cindy's lawn. And the pictures are of corpse, knives, women with their faces scratched out. And the letters contain menacing words and phrases like mangled pulp and dead. 
Now, in January of 83, Cindy's friend Agnes had dropped by Cindy's house for a visit and had knocked on the door. There was no answer, so she she assumed that Cindy was taking a bath or whatever. And as she had gone in, she came across Cindy outside, crouched down with a nylon stocking tied tightly around Cindy's neck. Cindy had gone out to the garage to get a box and someone had grabbed her from behind. Cindy said all she saw was white sneakers. She'd moved to a new house, painted her car, changed her last name. She had also, at this point, hired a private investigator, Ozzy Caban. Now, this is the gentleman that I had spoke about earlier that I had tried to contact but did not hear back. Now, keep in mind, this is the first incident with the nylon stockings. The police continued their investigation and questioned Cindy. Ozzy later reported that she wouldn't tell them the entire story. She was an evasive, she withheld information, and simply would not act as a normal victim would act. How victims are supposed to act, I'm not sure. Everybody is different how they act. The police had given Cindy a polygraph test the examiner claimed that Cindy had been withholding information. Cindy's mother, whose name is Tilly, thinks the reason for Cindy's reluctance was that the, the attacker had threatened the family. And by naming them, the uh, attacker would have given, uh, killed Cindy's family. Now, in January, on January 27th, 1983, this is their f- the first major incident. Cindy is found unconscious in her garage. She tells the, the police that she had gotten up to answer a knock on, at her back door and a man had grabbed her. He dragged her to the garage where there was a second person waiting and one of them slashed her hand with a knife and knotted a black stocking tightly around her neck which caused Cindy to pass out. Cindy had over a dozen cuts, which looked like it had been made by a scalpel or some other sharp knife on her arms and legs, but nothing serious. Cindy only has very vague memories of being raped with a knife. After this attack, Cindy received $4,250 from the criminal injury section of the Workers' Compensation Board. Cindy then moved back into the home she had shared with Roy Makepeace during their marriage. Roy had moved out. In February of 83, David Bauer Smith, the veteran officer in charge of the investigation, believes that Roy Makepeace is terrorizing his ex-wife. Excuse me. He believes that Cindy is withholding information, so he arranges for her to take a polygraph exam, another one, which she failed. She also fails a second exam. She confesses that she recognizes she recognized one of the men who attacked her in January, but refuses to name him for fear he will go after her family. So her mother was correct in saying that yes, Cindy did knew did know who the people were and was afraid that they would go after her family. In spring of 83, Cindy moves for the third time in less than a year. In April of 83, the phone calls resume. In late April of 83, Cindy moves again. 
June, July of 83, Cindy visits her brother in Jakarta. Make peace paid for the visit. August 22nd of 83, the letters begin arriving at Cindy's workplace, Blenheim House. October 15th of 83, a strangled cat is found in Cindy's garden with a note, you're next. Late October, someone destroys Cindy's garden, and Cindy had insisted that Makepeace wouldn't have done this. Five years later, someone had found one of her journals, and in the journal, she did write that she suspected that it was Roy Makepeace because he had done it before while they were married. In November of 83, McBride finds another note on Cindy's porch, but followed up four days later by another strangled cat and a cat hit by a car. McBride convinced Cindy to hire his friend, private investigator, Caban, and then this is when Cindy's phone lines are cut again. Threatening notes are left by the assailant. Now, again, in January of 84, since Ozzy has been hired by Cindy, they had a system set up. Ozzy had given Cindy a radio and he heard strange sounds coming over the two-way radio he had given Cindy and he went straight to her home. He went around it and found it was locked and looking through a window, he, he had found her lying on the floor with a parry knife through her hand. She was taken, she was then taken to a hospital where she later recalled being attacked and a needle going through her arm. The police never took fingerprints from a suspect and there was no independent cooperation. Cindy had seen the person sometimes accompanied by one or two others, or sometimes she said there, there were two or three people, but police could never find a suspect. The threatening phone calls had continued, but they were too short to trace. There were never ones when the police had been there or had 24-hour surveillance on her for days on end with up to 14 officers. But when surveillance was off her house, another incident would happen. So this is why police were having issues with having Cindy there by herself and then having the police there. So they were having a hard time believing her because they would be there nothing would happen. As soon as the police would leave, something would happen. So, and this is why I would say, remember that there are two people that have keys to this home. The other thing I want you to keep in mind, during this time frame, Cindy was also in phone contact with her ex-husband this entire time. She did not once not stop speaking to this person. So if he is, in fact, the person that is doing this, he knows when the police are there, when the police are not. Now, the other part is, is that the police did do a secret surveillance and how they knew, how this person knew that they were there and did nothing. I have no idea. This is, this is one thing that, like I said, it is a mystery and it had me hooked from the very beginning. Like I said, the police became skeptical of the harassment and Cindy's parents believed her attacker was staying away to make them suspicious of Cindy. So on December 11th of 85, she was found dazed and semi-conscious lying in a ditch six miles from her house. She was wearing a man's work boot and glove and suffering from hypothermia. 
The cuts and bruises covered her body and a black nylon stocking had been tightly tied tightly around her neck and she had no memory of what happened. And so this is the second incident with the nylon stocking. Agnes Woodcock and her husband, Tom, ended up staying with Cindy one night and heard noises and awoke to the basement in flames and the phone dead. Tom went to alert the neighbors. When he did, he saw a man standing at the curb and had asked him to call the fire department. But instead of going to one of the neighbors, this man just ran off down the street. The police suspected that Cindy had staged the incident. They found no dust or fingerprints disturbed on the outside of the window seal. But remember, other people had access to her house. If these two guys had made copies of keys, who's to say that they didn't make a copy of their copy to give it to someone else? And I'm not saying McBride, I'm talking make peace because this is who I believe is the person. The fire was set on set inside the house. In order to set it, it was thought that the person would have needed to climb through a specific window. It was also considered odd that Cindy, and this and this is odd, Cindy still walked her dog during the attacks at night without any incident whatsoever. In January of 84, this is the second major incident. On Valentine's Day, 1984, Roy Makepeace is questioned for nearly six hours by the police, and Roy claims to be as baffled by the incidents as Cindy. But he does offer up a theory that Cindy's work with troubled children has invoked the anger of a family with organized crime ties. My theory about that is if a kid hates you, they hate you. They don't hide anything. Kids are very upfront because these are small kids because remember, it's a preschool place. If you, little kids are the most honest as they can be unless they are being diagnosed with like schizophrenia or something like that. If you're having a great hair day, you know you're having a great hair day. Why? Because they tell you. If you're having a bad hair day, you know you're having a bad hair day. Why? Because they tell you. It's flat out. So if a kid hates you, they hate you. There's no denying it. They will flat out tell you, I don't like you. And they will, they will let you know. So if a kid is having, who has emotional issues, and I say this because I work with kids with emotional issues, if they are having a rough day, they're having a rough day. There's no denying it. And they will flat out, it is out of their mouth before they can even stop it. If they're having a good day, they're having a good day, man. It is up there. So to tell these kids, to say that it's these kids that are doing it, no. If they were family members of organized crime, I'm telling you, no, no. Just because they're family members of organized crime, those kids that go back to the fam their family members and said, well, this person was mean to me, this person was mean to me, those kids are in that setting for a reason. I don't care. If they went back and they said, well, they beat me to a pulp, different reason. But the way Cindy was working with these kids, no. I, I don't believe that for a minute. The person that was doing this with Cindy was... Mm, I'm going to say this word and I'm, I really don't like it. Mind fucking her. 
And that's exactly what they were doing. They were mind fucking her from day one. When you see the pictures that I'll post, you'll, you'll understand that. When you see her nursing graduation picture, she's a very beautiful woman, very beautiful. When you see the picture towards the end, you can see the difference in her because she had to be on different meds to cope because she didn't know which way was up. And it's the difference is staggering. I mean, it really is. It, the difference is staggering. And yes, we all age differently. I mean, we really do. However, the person that was playing with her was very good at what they were doing. They really were. I mean, I don't know how I would react if somebody was putting dead cats on my doorstep. Well, I take that back. I do know how I would react. It would hurt. It, I mean, I love animals. That, that would devastate me. And for someone to be putting those kind of letters and things like that on, on my porch and things like that, it would, it would devastate me. And to see how she was from A to go to B, it was just unreal. I mean, she, she, she lost weight. She just looked horrible. And it, and it was, that person was doing what they were doing for a reason. Now, back to this timeline. In the summer of 84, the harassment intensifies with, the, with phone calls at Cindy's home and work. The phone wires were cut, broken windows. Like I said, Cindy's losing weight and withdrawals from colleagues during work hours because who are you going to talk to? They don't understand what you're going through. And quite frankly, they probably were getting tired of hearing it because they don't know how to deal with it. Anytime somebody's going through a tragedy, all they can do is say, I'm sorry. Or they can look at you and say, I understand. No, you don't. Unless you personally are going through it, you don't understand. If you have a family member that's being abused and you are going through that and you're trying to talk to other people, you become very dark very fast. And if you were the fun couple and all of a sudden you are no longer the fun couple, you find out who your friends are very fast. You don't become as social. And people don't come around as often. You become very withdrawn. And that's what was happening to Cindy. In June of 84, Cindy triggers the personal alarm that Caban had given her after finding her back door partially open. Now inside the house, Caban finds a sexually explicit birthday note and a Rothman cigarette butt. But apparently Cindy was a smoker. I'm not holding that against her because shit, fuck, I would have been smoking, you know, one right after the other because you don't know what's going on. And she had a small dog named Heidi who they took and they, they tied to a kitchen table with the same type of string that they had used to strangle the cats with. And they beat this little dog to the point of bruising. So they had no problem with, with abusing animals. So they were sick people. In late June, early July of 84, a fourth cat is found. A fourth dead cat is found, also strangled. 
remember at this point two other people had extra sets of keys her ex-husband and a new boyfriend so i want you to keep this in your mind cindy's doctor ends up committing her to a local psychiatric ward believing she was becoming suicidal like i said they're mind fucking her so bad i can see this coming like i said when you see these photos of this of this woman of where she was and where she's coming it i i, I don't i don't see how she couldn't have been. 10 weeks later, she leaves the hospital. Her father, whose name is Otto, had said that she had finally attempt, admitted to her family and friends that she knew more than what she was saying and that she would go after the perpetrate, perpetrator herself, which she shouldn't have done. You, you never go that way. You know, you let the police handle that. But then again, you have to think, who in her life would have had that much control over her? On July 3rd, 1984, Cindy notifies Caban that she would be walking Heidi in Dunbar Park. Three and a half hours later, Cindy knocks on a stranger's door and collapses. A black stocking is not tightly around her neck. And the last thing she remembers is being stopped on the street by a bearded man and a blonde woman in a dark green van. The man asked her for directions. There's two needle marks on Cindy's arm, but no drugs in her system aside from prescribed antidepressants. Under questioning, she's confused and incoherent. In August of 84, at Caban's suggestion, Cindy undergoes hypnosis to help recall details of her most uh, recent abduction. The uh, hypnosis, how Booker is unable to recover any useful information. In October of 84, she goes under a second hypnosis session and she declares that she once witnessed a double murder. She can't uh, provide any details. October 4th, both Cindy and Caban confront the police investigators about the lack of progress. Caban, uh, he uh, threatens to take political action or go to the press. At this point, all of Cindy's co-workers and supporters have been investigated Interpol had looked into Roy's background and police secretly staked out Cindy's house for days without seeing anything. December of 84, after a quiet autumn, the phone calls resume. July of 85, during her third hypnosis session, Cindy reveals that during an 81 yacht trip with Roy that he murdered and dismembered a young couple on Thormenby Island. The detectives learned that Cindy's sister, Melanie, was also on that trip and noticed nothing unusual. Police can find no evidence of the supposed crime. June of 85, Cindy overdoses on pills and a parent's suicide attempt. She's released from the hospital less than a week later after promising to stay with her brother. She goes home alone instead. June 27th of 85, Cindy's phone lines are cut again. She had ignored the phone company's recommendation to have the wires encased in protective um, plastic. July of 85, a week-long police stakeout comprised of 14 strike force officers is conducted on Cindy and Roy. The officers observe no suspicious activity. In mid-July, Cindy reports a silent phone call, but she had dialed her own number. In July, on July 27th, Cindy receives a cosmetic case full of rancid meat in the mail. 
August 5th, Cindy reports the first of three arsons at her home. A basement window is open, but there's no signs of forced entry. On August 6th, that's the second arson. The police officer begins to suspect Cindy isn't being completely honest with him and asks Detective Carol Holliday to review the case and render her opinion. And Halliday concludes that Cindy is staging the incidents herself and had been suspected as far back as the first attack in 83 when Bower Smith arranged for the first two polygraph exams. On August 21st of 80, August 21st of 85, the third arson, again, the window doesn't appear to have been forced. The dust and cobwebs are undisturbed. Both men in Cindy's lives had keys. Duplicates could have been made. Now, in this one from the insurance company, Cindy receives 9500 But in December of 85, Cindy moves to Vancouver suburb of Richmond. December 11th of 85, Cindy is found wandering uh, around a pond near the university campus without shoes or a coat after going missing after her during her lunch break. A black stocking is, is knotted around her throat. And there's a needle mark on her arm, incoherent and confused, and she's unable to remember anything about the incident. This is when they consult, they meaning the police consult, a psychiatrist Anthony Marcus, and Marcus renders the opinion that Cindy engineered the harassment herself. Police decline to press criminal charges, mis- uh, press criminal mischief charges if Cindy agrees to enter therapy, which she doesn't do. Instead, she continues informal sessions with an unlicensed therapist named Connolly. For the first time since the incidents began, Cindy is surrounded by more doubters than believers. Her parents and Caban and a handful of close friends remain convinced that someone else is harassing Cindy, but the police are no uh, police no longer accept her reports at face value. April 15, 1986, after yet another fire reenacted on a uh, 1991 Unsolved Mysteries segment, arson investigators determined that the fire was started inside the house. Cindy accuses Roy of starting the fire, unaware that he was in South Africa at the time. Cindy is evicted from the house. Depressed and suicidal, she's given a six-month leave of absence from work. One therapist on therapist Connolly's advice, Doug Hack commits Cindy to St. Paul's Hospital, where RCMP psychologists review Cindy's file and classes the attacks and ar- arsons as psychotic behavior on the part of Cindy. Dr. Soon Mo and psychologist Ken Durkel reach the same conclusion. They believe that Connolly's insistence that the harassment was real hampered Cindy's treatment and consider it possible that Cindy could kill herself and stage it to look like murder so that Roy Makepeace can be blamed. Connolly himself concedes that this is a possibility. But my question is, based on what we know today, would the doctor still have given the same diagnosis with an RCMP saying that Cindy is doing it to herself? since that person is part of the same department that has been dealing with Cindy all these years. And looking back and looking at this case with fresh eyes and knowing that the cases of stalking and that stalkers have had people doing do things for them in the past when they have changed the diagnosis. In July, on July 15th, 1986, Cindy is released from the psychiatric ward and enters therapy with Dr. Friesen. Uh, she knows she shows marked improvement throughout the summer. In September of 86, Cindy buys the house in Richmond. 
October 86th, though the harassment has seemingly ceased, Cindy changes her last name to James. November of 86, Cindy is fired from the Blenheim house for poor work performance. She had worked there since 75. And this is a blow to Cindy. She had loved working with children. However, she gets back on her feet by taking refresher courses in nursing, and she's hired at Richmond General in August of 87. Late August 1987, Cindy reports a broken window and a window pried open. First week of September, Cindy reports a hole cut in a window. The suspects during the investigation, Cindy's ex-husband, Roy Makepeace, who was a suspect along with Pat McBride, who, as, as with a, being an ex-boyfriend, was a policeman, along with the man seen, seen running away from the curb. October 26, 1988, at midnight, Cindy triggers the alarm given to her by Caban. He finds her in the garage, partially nude, with a black stocking knotted around her neck and her hands and feet bound with another stocking. She says she's been grabbed from behind while getting out of her car. April 1989, another threatening note and a break-in attempt. May of 89, Cindy tells Caban that she wants to install an infrared alarm system in her backyard so she can shoot any intruders. May 26, Cindy begins a five-day vacation from her job at Richmond, Richmond General. She does various errands, which includes buying a birthday gift for a friend's son and getting a makeover. Friends, the Woodcocks arrive to play bridge with her at 10 p.m. Her car is still gone. They find it in the parking lot of a local Safeway. On June 8th of 1989, a road maintenance worker finds Cindy's body near an abandoned house off Blundell Road, roughly one mile from where her car was parked. She's lying on her side on the ground, fully clothed with hands and feet bound behind her back. There's a needle mark in one arm, and the autopsy re reveals that she died from an overdose of morphine and other drugs. There's a needle mark, but there was no needle found, unless it was kept out of the reports. Also, where, was the, where did the morphine come from? Obviously, today, morphine is highly regulated. But was it back then? What were the procedures? Was Cindy's ex-husband office checked was his office checked for missing morphine or any extra morphine that was ordered different differently was it you know they said it was taken orally to give her time to ingest it to, to give her time to get into this position her death is ultimately determined to be the result of an unknown event my opinion is because of how she was found is that it was the ex-husband I have to say there was never any other abuse history with Make Peace's family. Melanie, sis, Cindy's sister, even gave a eulogy at his funeral, a very loving eulogy. And why do I think it was Make Peace? He had the means and the opportunity. How? You're going to have to follow me on this one. GHB. Again, now indulge me. Back in the day in Canada, doctors would use GHB as an anesthetic. And if used too much or have withdrawal, GHB can cause anxiety, confusion, delirium, hallucinations, which seeing, hearing, or feeling things that aren't there, paranoia, feeling suspicious, hostile, fearful, difficulty sleeping, with the mental effects of un being, you know, 
uninhibited, willing to do things they wouldn't normally do, unable to remember things, loss of short-term memory, being relaxed, drowsy, sleepy, dizzy, which can last several days, you know, having that happy with a sense of, you know, well-being, euphoria. Cindy had several of these issues with not remembering things, but she knew or claimed she knew who was doing this to her. Cindy never claimed anyone other than her ex-husband, at least in anything that I read. This was the one who was doing this to her. But the question remains, why? No one has come forward and has claimed that make peace has as a doctor or as a domestic slash partner slash husband slash boyfriend has ever laid hands on them, only Cindy. And the other man in her life that can have a name put to him, which is Pat McBride. And the people wonder why he left her if he believed that she was being harassed. Look, McBride was a, was a police officer and a human being, and you can only take so much. If the evidence isn't adding up and on top of it, you yourself are starting to be stressed out, then you have to ask yourself if you're in this relationship for the long haul. And obviously he wasn't. You can't blame him. It could have also started to affect his career. There were a lot of what ifs here that I wasn't privy to. Means, motive, opportunity. That's what you look at. Who would have benefited for through her death? I don't know who would have benefited monetarily through her death. I'm not privy to that. You always look at that. Was he upset that his young wife left him? I don't know. Again, I didn't get to speak to her sister. I didn't get to speak to Caban. But again, there were things that were written in her journal that only slightly came out. I don't know. But having those effects of the GHB with short-term memory loss, she was dizzy, she was doing things that she had no memory of, and what, could she have done a Gone Girl on him? Hey, could very well have. We don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Nobody does. That being said, I'll post the links on my Facebook for sources and the photos. I hope you enjoyed this one, and like I said, this was a truly a mystery. If this was your first time listening, Please go back and download the previous episodes. They're available on these platforms, podbean.com, Facebook, iTunes, and Spotify at all things Erie from Erie PA, and that's Erie with three E's. We're also on Twitter at all, th all things Erie from Erie PA and Instagram at Kathy B-R-D-L-Y. Please feel free to leave any questions or comments, and I certainly have time right now to answer them. Also, don't forget to rate us, uh, rate our podcast on both iTunes and Podbean.com. It certainly helps. So stay safe, stay healthy, everyone. And this is Kathy signing off. Hey.